Good afternoon. You're listening to The Emily Rooney Show. Well, as you've been hearing, President Obama's Affordable Care Act, the health insurance law, has essentially been upheld by the United States Supreme Court, with the exception of a few fairly significant tweaks to the Medicaid portion. We're going to be looking at the law from all angles today, from how, if at all, it will affect Massachusetts residents, and maybe more importantly, how it will affect the presidential race, as now both the president and Mitt Romney have powerful fodder. Obama, uh, Obama can lay claim to a dream come true for Democrats while Romney can claim he's the guy to get rid of the law. And we'll be hearing from the president in about 10 minutes. But right now, I've got one of the chief architects for the Massachusetts health care law and the Affordable Care Act with me by telephone. Jonathan Gruber is professor of economics at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, and he joins me. Welcome, Jonathan. Thanks so much. Good to be here. So were you relieved? Were you surprised? Did you kind of anticipate that this is what would happen? Uh, I think relieved exactly the right word is exactly the right word. My, my, um, I think basically this case never should have gone this far. Uh, virtually all constitutional scholars who were polled uh, and experts said this is silly that the Supreme Court's even considering this. It's clearly constitutional. Um, so uh, I, I, I'm relieved that uh, at the end of the day we got the right outcome. I mean, we could be having a completely different discussion right at this second, but just remind all of us for a second, if you would, why, if they had struck down the individual mandate, it was so critical to the rest of the law and the rest of the law could have crumbled behind it. Well, it, it, it was critical to a key component of the law. The most popular and important part of the law is ending discrimination by insurance companies, no longer allowing insurance companies to deny people insurance or charge them more for insurance just because they're sick. But you can't do that piece without the mandate. Uh, in fact, seven, we've run the experiment. Seven states tried it, tried fixing insurance markets without the mandate, hmm. and in every case it was a disaster, including Massachusetts, where our individual – we tried it in 1996. By the time we considered this law in 2005, individual insurance in Massachusetts cost $8,000 a person just for one person. Uh, we passed this law, added the mandate, and prices fell in half. So we've really seen the mandate matters if you want to make these legal changes. Hmm. All right now, the, this, uh, this Medicaid portion of it – I mean, how significant is that? You, you know, it's, it, it's really not. So with Medicaid, um, there's two pieces. There's the fact that the mandate will cause people who are already eligible for Medicaid to come on board. And that costs the states between 25 cents and 50 cents. In Massachusetts, it's 50 cents on the dollar, and poor states, it's 25 cents. And that's going to be a new expense. Then there's the second piece, which is the new expansion. People, people who weren't already eligible are now entitled. That's the piece which states can now say, no thanks, I don't want to take. But for that piece, the federal government spends, pays 90 cents on the dollar. So just to be clear, if Texas says, I don't want to do this, they're going to be turning down billions of dollars of federal funds because they have to spend $100 million or so. It really would be a silly decision on their part. So I don't think it's going to end up being a very big deal. You don't. So, no. But it sounds like the, 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 there's almost like a, a grandfather clause then, I mean, for people who are already on the system versus people who are coming in. People are already eligible, you know, they, they, they're now subject to the mandate, and they'll come in, and, and that'll be a split between the federal and state government. If people are newly, newly eligible, that cost is virtually all picked up by the federal government. And I think any uh, – I, I hope that any rational voter would see – they're just throwing tons of money away by not adopting that in their state. Right, Jonathan Gruber, we are going to take the president in about five minutes, and I know you're going to have to go too, but I want to bring a couple other people into the discussion. Former Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor Kerry Healy, uh, Dr. Harry Silker, he's uh, chief of MD at the Institute for Clinical Research and Health Policy Studies at Tufts, and David Kravitz of Blue Mass Group. He was a former clerk for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and I've already been bragging about you, David, because I know you predicted this as essentially <laughs> it came down. Um, Kerry Healy, though, what, what, what is your reaction? And I'm wondering if you have any reaction to what Jonathan Gruber was saying, too. Well, uh, my first reaction is that really this ruling changes nothing. Obamacare was bad for America yesterday, and it's bad for America today. And Funny, yet- that's what Mitt Romney just said. Well, <laughs> I guess we're on the same same wavelength here. And Governor Romney yesterday said that if he's elected, he will repeal and replace Obamacare. And he's saying the same thing today, I'm sure, even though I haven't heard him. So um, so, so really, it changes nothing. And, and all of the issues that made Obamacare objectionable to so many people across the country still exist. It's still holding small businesses back from hiring and slowing the, the economic recovery. It creates economic uncertainty. And, and it's going to cost trillions and trillions of dollars. So I think that th- this is not going to be the end of this discussion. It's just going to be a continuation of the discussion we've been having uh, for months now. Dr. Selker? 
You want to weigh in on that? Do you think it's bad for America, bad for the economy, bad for the people? I think it's a great day if you're somebody who needs medical care. I think when you look around your family and you wonder, would I want them to have medical care? You'd always want them to have that. And we've expanded it to between 30 and 50 million more people. That has to be a good thing for them. Uh, and, and can we afford it? I think Massachusetts has shown that we can afford it. In fact, it's taken a very small portion of our, our budget to implement reform, about 1% of our budget, and uh, more employers are providing insurance. So I think it's a good thing. And this is in the, the Affordable Care Act goes further than Massachusetts does, and that's a great thing. Mm. David, you were pretty certain this was going to come down the way it did. How come? Uh, the, the, well, the, the, the thing that you're referring to that I had written shortly after the oral argument said, you know, look, this whole argument about the government making you do something or not making you do something, if you actually look in the statute, if you actually get into the weeds and the details of what the statute says, it actually really doesn't do that. What it says is you can buy health insurance or if you don't have health insurance, you can pay a little bit more in your taxes. And that is the argument. That the, and, and, so, and so my take on that is that is clearly constitutional. That is not you know, meaningfully different from what Congress has done and probably thousands of other provisions in the tax code mm-hmm. where they encourage or discourage people from doing things that they want or don't want to do by adjusting your taxes. And so – and that is the argument that five justices of the court signed right. on to. Of course, so, President Obama was trying to say it wasn't a tax and essentially the Supreme Court has said it is. But Jonathan <laughs> Gruber, you, you had expressed concern that the justices might not sufficiently understand how health insurance works. What do you what do you think now? Well, I think that um, uh, I still think that the fact that they think that the largest single sector of the economy somehow doesn't affect interstate commerce is sort of crazy. Uh, so I still don't understand their commerce clause arguments. But I think, look, at the end of the day, what matters is the victory. Uh, Carrie Healy, uh, who is a great person, is clearly wrong on this one. Um, and she's wrong in two senses. First of all, she's wrong in the sense that this is bad for America. That's just a difference of opinion. What she's really wrong and just factually wrong is the idea that Republican candidates have anything like replace. The Republican position is repeal and repeal. There is no replace. So far, the best idea that candidate Romney's come out with is allowing cross-state sales of insurance. The state of Georgia just passed a law allowing cross-state sales of insurance. Zero insurers have expressed interest in taking advantage of that law. There is no replace. If you believe that we should continue to have 50 million arising uninsured Americans, then for sure support the Republican position. But don't be fooled into thinking there's anything that, re- that resembles a replace. The Republican position is simply repeal, repeal, repeal. Well, Kerry Haley, uh, Mitt Romney stood before a podium this morning with that exact phrase in front of him saying, Replace, uh, repeal, and replace. We're taking the president in about a minute, so I'm going to have to interrupt you when, but I'm going to let you get going on this first. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that that opportunity. Um, of course, there's something to replace it with, and it's what happened in Massachusetts. And, and it's not an identical uh, replica of what happened in Massachusetts, but every state should be allowed to innovate and create their own uh, version of health care reform. And I think that that is effective. We've seen it can be effective in Massachusetts. And he has said on his first day that he would block grant Medicaid funds to the states and begin this process of repeal and replace. And I, I think that it's disingenuous to imagine that, that that can't be effective in other states just as it was in Massachusetts. And that is a plan to replace. Want to respond to that, Jonathan? Uh, it's a plan to replace only if the money's there, Kerry. And President Romney, or candidate Romney, I shouldn't say that, <laughs> candidate Romney, President B. Romney, has not expressed any view of where the money comes from. As you know, Kerry, we only were able to do it in Massachusetts because the federal government paid for half of it. Uh, so is candidate Romney saying he's willing to raise the trillion dollars it's going to take to allow states to do this? Or is he just saying states can do it, but ha-ha, they won't because there's no money? No, he, he is saying that given the, the opportunity, states will find the way to do it that's appropriate for each state, and that the mistake here with Obamacare was to imagine that one size could fit all across the country. And there are lots of different ways of doing it, and we need to bring the best minds like you together to help each state come up with those solutions. You know, one thing that surprises me, and I'd like to get everybody to weigh in on this, and that is that Oh, here comes the president. So he's speaking okay. from the East Room of the White House. We're going to listen to him. We, we may uh, come back in about 10 or 15 minutes, depending on what he has to say. Here we go to the president. Constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act, the name of the health care reform we passed two years ago. In doing so, they've reaffirmed a fundamental principle that here in America, in the wealthiest nation on earth, No illness or accident should lead to any family's financial ruin. I know there will be a lot of discussion today about the politics of all this, about who won and who lost. 
That's how these things tend to be viewed here in Washington. But that discussion completely misses the point. Whatever the politics, today's decision was a victory for people all over this country whose lives will be more secure because of this law and the Supreme Court's decision to uphold it. And because this law has a direct impact on so many Americans, I want to take this opportunity to talk about exactly what it means for you. First, if you're one of the more than 250 million Americans who already have health insurance, you will keep your health insurance. This law will only make it more secure and more affordable. Insurance companies can no longer impose lifetime limits on the amount of care you receive. They can no longer discriminate against children with pre-existing conditions. They can no longer drop your coverage if you get sick. They can no longer jack up your premiums without reason. They are required to provide free preventive care like checkups and mammograms, a provision that's already helped 54 million Americans with private insurance. And by this August, nearly 13 million of you will receive a rebate from your insurance company because it spent too much on things like administrative costs and CEO bonuses and not enough on your health care. There's more. Because of the Affordable Care Act, young adults under the age of 26 are able to stay on their parents' health care plans, a provision that's already helped six million young Americans. And because of the Affordable Care Act, seniors receive a discount on their prescription drugs, a discount that's already saved more than five million seniors on Medicare, about $600 each. All of this is happening because of the Affordable Care Act. These provisions provide common sense protections for middle class families, and they enjoy broad popular support. And thanks to today's decision, all of these benefits and protections will continue for Americans who already have health insurance. Now, if you're one of the 30 million Americans who don't yet have health insurance, starting in 2014, this law will offer you an array of quality, affordable private health insurance plans to choose from. Each state will take the lead in designing their own menu of options. And if states can come up with even better ways of covering more people at the same quality and cost, this law allows them to do that too. And I've asked Congress to help speed up that process and give states this flexibility in year one. Once states set up these health insurance marketplaces, known as exchanges, insurance companies will no longer be able to discriminate against any American with a pre-existing health condition. They won't be able to charge you more just because you're a woman. They won't be able to bill you in, into bankruptcy. If you're sick, you'll finally have the same chance to get quality, affordable health care as everyone else. And if you can't afford the premiums, you'll receive a credit that helps pay for it. Today, the Supreme Court also upheld the principle that people who can afford health insurance should take the responsibility to buy health insurance. This is important for two reasons. First, when uninsured people who can afford coverage get sick and show up at the emergency room for care, the rest of us end up paying for their care in the form of higher premiums. And second, if you ask insurance companies to cover people with pre-existing conditions but don't require people who can afford it to buy their own insurance, some folks might wait until they're sick to buy the care they need, which would also drive up everybody else's premiums. That's why, even though I knew it wouldn't be politically popular and resisted the idea when I ran for this office, we ultimately included a provision in the Affordable Care Act that people who can afford to buy health insurance should take the responsibility to do so. In fact, this idea has enjoyed support from members of both parties, including the current Republican nominee for president. Still, I know the debate over this law has been divisive. I respect the very real concerns that millions of Americans have shared. And I know a lot of coverage through this health care debate has focused on what it means politically. Well, it should be pretty clear by now that I didn't do this because it was good politics. I did it because I believed it was good for the country. I did it because I believed it was good for the American people. You know, there's a framed letter that hangs in my office right now. It was sent to me during the health care debate by a woman named Natoma Canfield. For years and years, Natoma did everything right. She bought health insurance. She paid her premiums on time. But 18 years ago, Natoma was diagnosed with cancer. And even though she'd been cancer-free for more than a decade, her insurance company kept 
jacking up her rates year after year. And despite her desire to keep her coverage, despite her fears that she would get sick again, she had to surrender her health insurance and was forced to hang her fortunes on chance. I carried Natoma's story with me every day of the fight to pass this law. It reminded me of all the Americans all across the country who have had to worry not only about getting sick, but about the cost of getting well. Natoma is well today. And because of this law, there are other Americans, other sons and daughters, brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, who will not have to hang their fortunes on chance. These are the Americans for whom we passed this law. The highest court in the land has now spoken. We will continue to implement this law, and we'll work together to improve on it where we can. But what we won't do, what the country can't afford to do, is refight the political battles of two years ago or go back to the way things were. With today's announcement, it's time for us to move forward, to implement and, where necessary, improve on this law. And now's the time to keep our focus on the most urgent challenge of our time, putting people back to work, paying down our debt, and building an economy where people can have confidence that if they work hard, they can get ahead. But today, I'm as confident as ever that when we look back five years from now, or 10 years from now, or 20 years from now, we'll be better off because we had the courage to pass this law and keep moving forward. Thank you. God bless you, and God bless America. You are listening to the president from the East Room of the White House. This is at the Emily Rooney Show. I'm joined here in the studio by a group of experts that we're going to be discussing further the effects of the um, ruling from the Supreme Court today. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, more on the decision from the Supreme Court. You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show from WGBH 89.7, Boston Public Radio. Love our contributors. That means you. And New England Subaru offering the all-wheel drive outback during the Subaru Summer Event 2012. Love, it's what makes a Subaru a Subaru. Dealer listings and more information available at NewEnglandSubaru.com. And Skinner, auctioneers and appraisers of antiques and fine art. You might consider auction when downsizing a home or disposing of an estate. 60 auctions annually, 20 collecting categories. Boston and Marlboro, online at SkinnerInc.com. And Miller Systems, designing and delivering websites, intranets, and portals on Microsoft SharePoint. Miller Systems, since 1995. Quality user experiences. Technology that's right for the job. MillerSystems.com slash SharePoint. Chef Marcus Samuelson was born in Ethiopia, raised in Sweden, and now runs one of New York's most celebrated restaurants in Harlem. On the next Fresh Air, he talks about the insults and abuse he faced training in some of Europe's elite restaurants and why it made him a better chef. Marcus Samuelson's new memoir is called Yes, Chef. Join us. This afternoon at 2, here on 89.7 WGBH. I'm Callie Crossley. On the next Callie Crossley Show, from the bus stop to the boardroom, we'll bring you a wide-ranging conversation that taps into the talk of your town. We want to hear from you, too. Call in and become a part of the conversation. On the Callie Crossley Show, radio is a two-way street. That's today at 1 on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio.
You're listening to the Emily Rooney Show. We're talking about the legal and political implications of the Supreme Court ruling on the Affordable Care Act today. I'm joined here in the studio by former Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor, who's now working for the Mitt Romney campaign, Carrie Healy, Dr. Harry Selker, who's a chief medical doctor at the Institute for Clinical Research and Health Policy Studies at Tufts, and David Kravitz with Blue Mask Group, who was also a former clerk for Justice Sandra Day O'Connor. One of the things that I really want to try to get to the bottom of is because we were just listening to President Obama take off all the very positive things that he sees in the bill. You know, the coverage, uh, you can't deny people coverage because they have a pre-existing condition. You can't jack up premiums or uh, cancel a policy just because somebody's sick. They're required to pay for basic services like mammograms. They're going to get these rebates from insurance companies. It covers, it's going to give you a discount on drugs for seniors. Still, this policy, while people like – it's going to ask you, Dr. Zelker, first. It's not really popular with most Americans. Forget Democrats, Republicans. Most Americans don't like it. Why? Do they don't get it or do they just don't want the government intruding in their lives? To be honest, I don't understand it. Um, you know, I think when I th- – as I said earlier, when you think of my family – um, and I think about whether I would want them to have health care, yes or no. It's pretty obvious. And when I think of our nation, uh, obviously being one of the last countries to have you know, universal access essentially to health care, it's an embarrassment that we didn't have it before. So uh, it, it is hard for me to understand why that would be. It's also hard for me to understand, as, as was said earlier, why a state would turn down 90 percent of coverage for people who otherwise would have trouble getting health care. So I don't understand why Of course, a lot of these be. provisions haven't gone into effect yet, and people's attitudes may change. I, I think that's right. And I yeah. think that's a big part of why, uh, why when you look at, at, at polling numbers, uh, it does come off as, as not popular because basically most Americans have not yet seen much in the way of benefit from this law. Mm-hmm. What they have heard is a lot of chatter. I don't understand about, why they're so wedded to their insurance company, which are basically it's legalized theft. I never understand why anybody cares about their insurance company. Car, health, you know, home. It's like, you know, right. you just I mean, write the checks. A... And if, if you ever put in for something, they jack it up and make you pay for it twice. Well, I don't think it's that people love their insurance companies. I think it's that people are scared of not having health insurance. I mean, that's that's really, you know, the, the big issue here is that most people – uh, you know, most people want health insurance, and and that's uh, and, and and so some of the problems that you're talking about are are precisely the problems that are addressed by this law, but not yet, because a lot of those provisions again have not gone into mm-hmm. effect and won't go into effect until 2014, when the the so-called individual mandate, which we may have to now come up with a different name for, uh, uh, also the takes tax. effect. Yes, exactly. Right. <laughs> I'm the, sure Mitt Romney will be calling it a tax. <laughs> I'm just, it, it's already happening. Yeah. It's already. But so I think that's part of it, and honestly. I, I think that some of the blame falls on the White House. I think they have basically not mounted an effective communication strategy around why Americans should like the health care law. And well, it's too long. It's too owners. You can't read through it. And, and so they're, they're trying to remedy that now with things like what we just heard from the president. And, and, and you know, if you go to, you know, BarackObama.com, there's a whole page on why the, why the Health Care Act is good for you and all that sort of thing. But they should have been doing this two years ago. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's, it's a combination, I'd say, of the fact that a lot of the good stuff isn't here yet. Yet with a communications failure. You probably have a different take on it. <laughs> yeah, I, I just think that voters aren't stupid. They, when they listen to a list, this incredible long enumeration of things that they're going to get for free, they know that they're not free. There's nothing free coming from the government. Someone is paying for it, and that's the taxpayers. And they know that for everything they're hearing, uh, they actually they, they can hear their taxes going up. They can hear that trillions and trillions of extra dollars that are going to be required by the federal government in order to implement this plan. And while all those things sound desirable and good, uh, they do not require a federal government to achieve them. And one of the mistakes, I think, in this debate is to characterize the the folks who oppose Obamacare as people who don't want people to have insurance or or to suggest that they somehow care less about people who are in very difficult circumstances due to, for example, pre-existing conditions. Uh, Obviously, Governor Romney cares deeply about these issues or else he wouldn't have undertaken the massive effort to accomplish health care reform in Massachusetts. He thinks that it's extremely important that the people of America 
have health care insurance and that it that it's portable and that you can have more choice and that those markets are competitive competitive so that the cost goes down. So I uh, I, I think that we're, we're sort of being forced into a false debate in some ways. The question is, how do you accomplish it? Governor Romney strongly feels that you accomplish this best on a state by state basis with a lot of flexibility, listening to the needs of each state, because what's good here in Massachusetts is not going to work for folks out in no, Montana or Texas. If it's a question of federalism, though, how can he how can a replace system basically force a state to do something if you if he's backing a federalist system, which basically says every state should deal with it by themselves? What can the what could the federal government then do if he's basically ceding the control to the states? It's not for the federal government to do. This is something that needs to be taken care of by the people who uh, are in the states and understand the needs of those states. And those Some elected of them don't officials, care, like Texas, well, they you don't know care. What? People do care, and and elected officials are listening to that. They hear that people care deeply, and what they do, what the people want is they want more open markets. They do not want to have higher taxes. This is a moment where the most important issue in this country is our is the economy and jobs. And so, when you have a program, no matter how good it sounds, that says it's going to cost trillions and trillions millions of dollars of new taxes in order to implement, people are scared of that. And they understand the impact that that's going to have on the economy. So the, people have a lot of needs right now. And one of those needs is health care. But what they really need is a better economy so everyone can afford to pay for health care. I want to give uh, Mitt Romney a chance to be heard. He spoke uh, at about uh, quarter of 12 uh, this morning. He's on the campaign of trail, of course, but he wanted to get uh, word out there what he intends to do. Here's a little of what he had to say. Our mission is clear. If we want to get rid of Obamacare, we're going to have to replace President Obama. My mission is to make sure we do exactly that, that we return to the American people the privilege they've always had to live their lives in the way they feel most appropriate. You know, Obama was saying this is going to be judged uh, who won, who lost. It's a political issue. It's hard not to look at it politically. For one thing, Chief Justice John Roberts was really the deciding vote. It was a 5-4 decision. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts is considered conservative. He was appointed to the bench by uh, George W. Bush. And President Obama, as you'll recall, voted against Roberts' uh, you know, uh, acceptance to the, to the court when he was in the Senate. So if it was going to be a personal thing, it was going to be a political issue. This would have been the perfect time right. for well, I, you know, I, Roberts I, to take a uh, Take action. To take a shot at it, right. Uh, one one uh, sort of amusing comment that I saw coming over Twitter uh, this morning as a reaction was sort of flooding in was uh, uh, people were saying, well, you know, af- after Roberts uh, flubbed the oath of office for President oh, yeah. Obama, he <laughs> felt like he owed him one. And so this was, this was payback <laughs> and now they're all square. <laughs> but uh, but the, 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 the question of, of the lineup, uh, if I can sort of become a Supreme Court wonk for a minute, uh, the question of the lineup on this decision is it was really it's very, very interesting one. It's one that very, very few people had predicted. And just to just to sort of do a, a brief summary, if I can, uh, there, there were you know, the, the big argument and what a lot of people thought was going to decide this case was whether the clause of the Constitution that allows the federal government to regulate interstate commerce, whether that authority, which has you know expanded substantially over the years, uh, whether that was enough to require people to purchase health insurance. Five justices of the court, the four dissenters and Chief Justice Roberts, went out of their way at length to say, no, it does not. And so we actually have, I mean, you know, so the health care issue is obviously very important. But we also have in this opinion an extremely important uh, ruling, uh, essentially. I mean, it's not quite a ruling, but it's effectively a ruling on the scope of federal power the and, and the circumstances. The, the dimensions of that opinion have not yet been fully mm. appreciated and fully dissected. But then we have what was kind of the surprise where Roberts then pivots and he agrees with the four so-called liberals on the court. And he says, OK, the Commerce Clause isn't good enough. What about this backup argument that the, the government included in its brief almost as an afterthought that said, uh, well, if you don't uphold it on the Commerce Clause, we also think you can uphold it on the taxing power. Mm-hmm. And that's the lineup on which the court rules five to four that uh, that the mandate, the so-called mandate, can be upheld on the ground that it's not really a mandate at all. All it does is it says you have a choice. You can carry health insurance or if you don't want to carry health insurance for whatever reason, you can see your taxes go up a little bit. And in that respect, and the, and the chief justice actually cites some of these examples in his opinion, he says it's not really any different from the home mortgage deduction, from the tax credit that you get for replacing your windows with energy efficiency 
efficient windows and the tax credit that you get for buying a hybrid car and so forth. It's just Congress uh, creating incentives via the tax code to engage or not engage in certain behavior. That's what they've done here. And so that's where we get the lineup. There's this additional question of the Medicare expansion, which we've heard about um, a little bit. And that's the the provision that that uh, Professor Gruber talked mm. a little bit about, where there's this enormous expansion of the. Excuse me, I think I said Medicare, but it's Medicaid. Yeah, I always get uh, too confused. Yeah, anyway. <laughs> the, the the enormous expansion of the Medicaid program uh, to you know wide varieties, wide categories of people that are not presently covered under Medicaid, but now will be, and the federal government requires the states to uh, to you know, adjust their eligibility guidelines and will pay 90% of the cost of doing so. Uh, that condition, the condition in the bill was that uh, you either accept the Medicaid expansion and you take the 90% or you're out of the Medicaid program completely. Uh, and so it was a fairly onerous choice and uh, a, a very interesting lineup of seven to two justices said that went too far and that the the remedy is Congress is free to say to states, you know, you can uh, – if you want the 90 percent funding, you have to take the new conditions. But what they cannot do is threaten to withdraw existing Medicaid uh, uh, subsidies. And so if, if a state doesn't want to participate for whatever reason, they can keep their Medicaid program the way it is. And it's fascinating to me that the two additional votes that Chief Justice Roberts got were those of – Justice Breyer, who is, uh, you know, generally considered uh, among the most uh, deferential to federal power on the court, and uh, Justice Kagan, who, you know, is not mm. only one of the more liberal justices, but also was Obama's solicitor general for about a year before she went on to the Supreme Court. So she actually worked in the Obama administration, and yet she and Breyer, who uh, incidentally also worked for Ted Kennedy back in the day. Um, are two of the ones who signed on to uh, with with the rest of the conservative justices saying that the Medicaid expansion goes too far. So complicated ruling, yeah. lots of shifting It'll be, alliances. See if it changes the uh, Supreme Court's uh, approval ratings at all now that they can right. argue that it wasn't at all um, partisan. But, you know, going back to Mitt Romney for a minute, and he says day one, it's going to be a little bit more complicated than that, as you know, Kerry Healy, because he's got to go back through Congress. And a bipartisan, I mean, Congress voted it in. You know, they're, they're going to have, they could end up with a, a, you know, a Republican Congress too. But it's going to be a long haul. Like he can't do it on day one. Well, there are things that he can do on day one, and and one of them is to take executive action to block grant this Medicaid money back out to the states and to release them from their obligations under Obamacare. So um, he he will do that, and that is what that's the advantage that we had in Massachusetts. That Governor Romney benefited from uh, back when he was trying to do health care reform in Massachusetts. He asked the Health and Human Services, "Give me some flexibility. Uh, you know, allow us to structure our own program to meet our own needs." And he sees the the benefit in that. And he's absolutely dedicated to getting better health care for, for people across the country, just as he did in Massachusetts. But he does not think Obamacare is the right way to go about it. Well, what about that, Dr. Selker? I mean, since you argue very forcefully that it has worked here in Massachusetts, why not just throw it back to the to this federalist system, let states do it? Or do you really look at it realistically and think, oh, well, you know, states like Idaho and Texas are never going to do that? Right. Well, I mean, the, the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act includes a lot more than what happened in Massachusetts, and it's important to note that. Right now, for example, in Massachusetts, you know, years after we passed the increased access uh, to health care, we still are now dealing with the costs, and that's a big deal right now in, in our legislature. The Affordable Care Act obviously takes that on as a separate thing at, at its inception. So not only does it protect the patient, uh, and part of that is, is making it affordable. It also protects the United States. It, it recognizes that we have a budget problem. So whereas we have a, a cost problem here in Massachusetts and follow-up to that reform, the Affordable Care Act was obviously by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office scored as saving money for the nation, not costing extra money. And that's an important thing. And then the last thing that it did in the Affordable Care Act is it has a self-sustaining improvement cycle in it. So um, one of the things I worked on uh, in, in crafting the health care legislation was the research section of it, which is comparative effectiveness research and also the Medicare um, innovation centers. And this allows us to learn what are the best strategies for care, the most um, effective treatments. And if they are the same cost or one is different, then you can take that into consideration. Also, 
the Medicare Innovation Center allows for innovations in care delivery. None of that was included in the Massachusetts thing, the changing of care delivery. And this allows for innovations to be tested and then put into actual practice. So it's much more extensive than the Massachusetts one. And I don't think there's many states, even one as aggressive and, and successful as Massachusetts, that could take it on. So if if, um, if the states don't expand the Medicaid, as we were just talking about, um, as, as the Supreme Court now allows, now allows how is it going to affect, you know, the, the issue of sort of the broadest possible coverage? I mean, that's part of the idea behind the Affordable Care Act, to get the broadest possible coverage. But if individual states opt out of that uh, Medicaid portion of it, you, you could be losing the very the, the exact same people that, that the president was intending to get. Right. That's the part I don't understand. It just it strikes me as citizens of this nation, the idea that we wouldn't look for a way to help the poorest of us uh, get access to care. I can't imagine a state making that decision, but apparently 26 of them sued to not have to do that, which is remarkable in my mind. I, I as, a, as a citizen, can't understand that. Go ahead. If I can jump yes. in here briefly, it, More than it, briefly. it's an Go expansion ahead. of Medicaid. Medicaid obviously exists in all of those states. And the, and the question is, can states afford expansions at this moment? And most states across the country are seeing their revenues drop, not increase. Uh, and there are any number of claims on those uh, funds that do exist for those states. And so the, the idea that even if the federal government is ready to come in and pay 90 percent of some new cost, um, that means you've got to come up with the other 10 percent. And while that may sound small, in terms of percentage, uh, it, it is, it's real money for these states. And if you don't have the money, you don't have the money. They, they would have to face the situation of either raising their own taxes within the state in order to meet that obligation um, or cutting something else that they value in their own budget. So the question, it's a question of, you know, do states have the resources to expand uh, Medicare in this way? And if they don't, how are they possibly going to find the money to do it? And they're just being realistic. We, we do not have a, a very strong economy right now. And so people have to make tough choices. And th- those states are saying just that. We'd, you know, perhaps they would very much like to make those expansions, but if they can't find but, I mean, the money, they can't find the One of the, the ideas here is to eliminate the free care pool. So wouldn't states be facing much lower costs because there'd be lower demand on the free care pool, which is enormous. That was very important to our reforms uh, here in Massachusetts, and and certainly shifting, uh, you know, those costs were were critical to how we made our our mm-hmm. books balance. And another point that I would make is that costs uh, for healthcare insurance, as I understand, I'm I'm out of government right now, but <laughs> if I believe the press releases by our current uh, govern, governor, uh, costs are actually decreasing now. Uh, so I, I I don't think that you can automatically say that things are going to not work well if you only innovate on a state level. I think states can figure this out. They will figure this out. And they are the best experts in terms of what their people need. But Emily, I think I think your question uh, about about, you know, about the free care pool goes to exactly the the, the point of the Medicaid expansion, which is that, you know, it, it seems to me it's, it's foolish to pretend that uh, if states just do nothing, uh, things aren't going to get worse. There is absolutely a cost to, for example, I think in Texas, the number is something like 25 percent of residents who don't have health insurance. There's an enormous yes, cost to not only to the people who don't have health insurance, obviously those people suffer, but but also to the state, to the state's fiscal uh, stability. And the whole point of this Medicaid expansion is to uh, not only to try to, you know, because it's the right thing to do, get a lot of people who don't have health insurance to have health insurance, but also to, in fact, take some of that burden away from the state governments who, you know, around the country, we know that that they're just they're being crushed by the burden of paying for uh, for uncompensated care. It's billions and billions of dollars. And uh, if we can get the numbers of uninsured down substantially, as we have here in Massachusetts, uh, it, I can't imagine why that why the same we wouldn't see the same kind of improvement elsewhere in the country if we start covering more people. You want to weigh in on that, Doctor Silver? I'm sorry. Do you think that that we're talking about the um, you know the, the the free care pool and would 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 this would would the, since there would be less of a demand on that? Wouldn't the states be able to then afford, better afford this expanded Medicaid service? Well, of course, Do you think that, that's true? Yes. I mean, uh, of course, that's why the Congressional Budget Office saw this as a, as a money-saving they, they plan. They do see it, but you know, that remains to be seen. Well, but at least it's a projection <laughs> yeah. as opposed to, to, you know, by looking at the coverage and expanding it and getting better care for people, they saw it as a savings, obviously. 
So I do think it's a much better system for getting care earlier. I mean, preventive care is obviously more effective than waiting until someone is sick and hospitalized. So for all those kinds of reasons, of course, expanding the pool of care makes more sense. Also, if you didn't have the mandate for getting people into the pool, then again, uh, you only have the sick people go in for insurance when they must. And again, then that means that those who could bring down the overall costs are not included. So it does make sense to include everybody. You know, there's no question, though, that, that doctors don't like Medicaid. It, it doesn't reimburse them at a rate that they can get for, you know, seeing somebody with insurance or regular. I, I was just watching this horrifying, shocking documentary on Frontline about dental care. And by the way, I do not understand why any basic health care plan does not include dental. It's one of the most critical issues facing America today. I mean, tooth decay and your mouth is just as important as any other part of your body. But one of the big problems in that documentary was that these people and dentists, and they just flat out deny anybody on Medicaid because it's it's like five cents. It was shocking. It's like five cents on the dollar or 20 cents on the dollar at most. So, I mean, once again, if you're expanding a Medicaid pool, you're putting doctors in a position of do, doing some work for free, correct? Well, no. I mean, obviously, the rates that are set for reimbursement are completely different than whether or not you have people covered. And, and obviously, they're trying to increase, and especially for primary care, the, the kinds of reimbursements that provided for Medicaid and Medicare. And that's actually another thing that didn't happen in this state that is happening in the Affordable Care Act, which is changing the reimbursement scheme to, in fact, pay more for preventive care and for dental primary too, care. Dental, too? But it doesn't. Not dental Why not? How could it not include that? Carrie Harley is rolling around saying, well, we don't want to get into that business, too. But, (laughs) my gosh, I can't imagine why you wouldn't make that just part of it. Am I naive? It's just like, what are you talking about? It just seems like it's more historical it's like, than anything else. It's like a else. mammogram bizarre, is more important It's just a than... bizarre exception to the way health insurance has always been provided, and I have no idea why it's there. It's I, like but I agree me- with you. It's, it's crazy. It's a little like mental health. I mean, mental health benefits no. have always been way less um, accessible than other parts of the body, and it's, it, there are certain biases and historical features of, of health care coverage. Yeah, but it, it – I don't know. Want to weigh in on that one? <laughs> That's a business. Yeah. You Emily, don't want the when, government when, when into that business either. Back to the state so they can address that issue as well. Yeah. I mean, can can I go back to something that um, Mitt Romney said, not in his remarks today, but this is from a speech that he made in Michigan right at the beginning of this cycle of the primer of the primary process, where he was, uh, and it was his big health care speech. And he it was the big speech where everyone was like, is he going to, you know, is he going to disavow the mandate or is he going to go with it? And he went with it uh, in Massachusetts. And what he said was, you know, we looked at the problem in healthcare in Massachusetts and, and we said, well, we basically have three choices to get people uh, t- to solve our problem. We have the big government solution, which is, you know, the government takes over health care, single-payer system. Well, of course, that was not acceptable to, 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 to Governor Romney. Uh, we can let people who don't have health insurance just not get treated. But he said that's not the way we want to do things. That's not the way we think uh, our society ought to operate. Or there's an individual mandate option. And so that is the option, option that they clear. took. Yeah. And I guess what, have al- what has always confused me about this state-by-state argument is, well, What's the fourth option that he's missing? Because if, if the argument is, well, we want every state to adopt their own approach, which are the states where he thinks that either the no health care option or the big government socialist, socialized medicine uh, you know, government takeover option are the right choices? That's what I've never understood about, about Romney's position on this. What Governor Romney is saying there is that every state could adopt that same approach in theory, but he does not believe that federal government is ever going to get this right and that the one size fits all in terms of, uh, you know, which which exact services, which exact policies should be put into place is, is ever going to really work for, for every state in the union. We are a very diverse country. And so when, when you look at what Obamacare does, it, it costs more. I deeply believe, and so does Governor Romney, that it costs more doing it at a federal level than it would cost the individual states if they went through the same process that we did here in Massachusetts and really made those tough choices about what what sort of things do people value here. Emily, you bring up uh, dental care. Maybe yeah. people in some some of the states think that's absolutely critical and that would have to be part of their, their process. It, it allows this broader discussion about the needs of each citizen's group in each state. And I don't 
they may well come up with the same sort of approach that we came to in, in Massachusetts. But that doesn't make it right to have the federal government decide to impose that on those states. And I can tell you that it will never be eco- economically more efficient to have the federal government administer anything. So that's true. <laughs> well, actually, that's not true. If you, oh, yeah? <laughs> if you look at the administrative costs of Medicare, which is a national health uh-huh. insurance program, it's 13%, which is about half of... 13% of what? ...of the overall costs for administrative costs as opposed to twice that for private insurance. So actually, that's kind of a canard that the idea that the federal government can't administer this. It's just not consistent with yeah, the Yeah, but facts. the insurance companies are in, in the business. Pro- they're profit-making. They're in the business of well, not money. all of them. Oh. The ones in this state are Don't not for profit. Don't even start with that. Well, they claim to be not for okay. profit. Okay. Well, good point. All the more reason to have the government they're, do they're it, for perhaps. Profit. Yeah. But regardless, I mean, the point stands that the administrative yeah. costs of, 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 of private insurance, whether it's profit, non-profit, or, or structured in some other way, are consistently much higher than the Medicare program. Yes. So and, that, like, and this goes back to basic questions about: Do you think that more government is better? Do you th- do you think that uh, that portion of our economy? Do you think a sixth of our economy should be run, you know, by the federal government, uh, or do you think that it should be more fragmented? Do you think you should be encouraging competition uh, in private sector healthcare insurers, and and that's where. Republicans and and I think many people in the country actually come down. But that's a philosophical thing. The, a philosophical the facts thing. are that it's not more expensive to run it by the government. I mean, that's just the facts. So we should stick that philosophically there's a disagreement. But people want choice. People will always want choice. And And who's to say that the government is providing the best option for everyone? But again, I mean, we're, no, no one is talking about a Medicare for all system right at the moment. There are lots of people who think maybe we should be. But 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 we're not. What we're talking about with this health care law is one that basically locks in, for better or for worse, the private insurance system that we currently have in this country. Uh, and and so the point about administrative costs is simply to say that, uh, you know, the facts on the ground are that actually the federal government does a pretty good job when it comes to keeping administrative costs down. But if someone chooses to go to a private insurer that charges more, uh, that, that has higher administrative costs, they remain absolutely free to do so under the law that was upheld today. Talking to David Kravitz from Blue Mass Group, who is also uh, a clerk for uh – Former Chief, former Justice, I should say, Sandra Day O'Connor, Dr. Harry Selker from Tufts Medical Center, and Carrie Healy, who's a former Massachusetts Lieutenant Governor and is now working for the Mitt Romney campaign. Is there anything, Dr. Selker, that, or anybody can see in this law that's going to have any impact whatsoever on Massachusetts, including the Medicaid aspect? Well, yes. I mean, as I mentioned, uh, whilst the uh, Massachusetts law increased access, and now we're dealing with costs, it didn't. It didn't do that much for reforming the care delivery system, and also including improvements in care as part of the intrinsic cycle where the public benefits from research. So what what really will help us all is, for example, to be changes in primary care. As you know, in Massachusetts, with more access, it's harder and harder for people to find a primary care doctor and one who's paid sufficiently to actually be able to spend time. The federal, the ACA, the Affordable Care Act, allows for higher... reimbursement for primary care. It gives incentives for people going into primary care. It also uh, allows for improvement in care delivery and, of course, incorporation of good research into improvement of that care. Uh, yeah, also in terms of impact on Massachusetts, it's it's instructive to look at the dissenting opinion so that we can yes. see what, what yeah. did not happen today. The dissenters, the four conservative justices, would have said not only is the mandate constitu- uh, unconstitutional, but then they would have thrown out the entire law, lock, stock, and barrel, saving none of it. And so all of the, all of the provisions that, you know, frankly do not seem at first glance to be particularly closely related to this question of the individual mandate that, that were just mentioned – uh, those would all be gone. And also the Medicaid expansion would be gone uh, had the dissenters' view uh, held sway. So uh, so what we know is that all of those things, which, you know, hopefully as they lead to improved practices uh, across the healthcare industry, hopefully those will help Massachusetts. You know, those will go forward. If, if any of you think that this individual mandate has maybe created an incentive for employers to stop offering insurance, you know, just knock yourselves out. Go out and, you know, if you don't want to pay, get your own insurance, then pay the fine and leave us out of this. But the facts in Massachusetts are with health care reform being put in place with mandate, in fact, employers are insuring more, not less. 
But, 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 but I, will that I, change? I've, is what I've I'm never at. understood that argument. I've never understood the argument that, that uh, this will encourage employers to drop insurance. First of all, I think – Well, why uh, should they be in that business at all anyway? Well, that's a separate argument and, and that is the <laughs> argument for nationalized health care. Yeah. And honestly, I have honestly – You I, have I've to really, have a job I, to have insurance? I, I've never really understood crazy. why business, which is – you know, which pays the lion's share of yeah. premiums. I mean typically a business plays, pays 70 or yes. 80 or 90 percent of your health insurance premiums. They're spending a phenomenal amount of money paying it over to the health insurance industry. I have never understood why they don't come out and say, please take, for the love of yeah. God, take this I, I burden off of us. It's but not that's, right. That's a, that's, if you're not, if you don't a have the right di- kind of job, you but, automatically right. don't have health But that's insurance. a conversation for a different day. Um, <laughs> uh, but what I, what I do not understand is why, uh, why the mandate would, would affect a business's decision to offer or not offer health insurance. First of all, the competitive pressures to offer health insurance in a lot of industries are phenomenal. And if a business says, well, we're not offering that's healthcare anymore. No one's going to want to work there. Mm. Uh, and and secondly, businesses have always had the ability to not offer health insurance as a benefit. And yeah, you're lots a freelancer. Of exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so th- I don't see why this changes that in the slightest. Yeah, the, the most important impact of Obamacare on job is uh, on, on employers is on job creation. They have to look at that marginal cost in terms of healthcare cost of employing the, that new employee. And across the country, Governor Romney has been hearing at at every stop that small businesses are very, very hesitant to start employing more people because of the uncertainty mm-hmm. created by Obamacare and those, those costs. They just don't know what precisely it's going to cost them in terms of medical care. And so they, they don't want to hire more people. Not in full-time positions. Not they in hire them in part-time. And, and this is bad for and... our economy. We need those small businesses to start expanding and to have confidence and to have certainty about the future. But of course, that's always been true because there's never been anything approaching certainty in terms of what's going to happen to your health insurance premiums next year. We saw it here here before the health care law was passed. We saw it since the health care, you know, health insurance premiums are, are, are kind of a wild card. And so, again, I, the, the connection between this health care law and, and whether, uh, whether businesses choose to add employees based on the cost of health insurance strikes me as, as dubious at best. And there are incentives for small businesses, in fact, to give health insurance in the Affordable Care Act. So it actually should help that uncertainty and improve things now that it's been upheld. What are they? What, what kind of incentives? Just financial incentives that mm. helps them pay for the insurance. They'll, they'll blow back some of it. So, Carrie Healy, do you think this is going to have any impact on the Scott Brown Elizabeth Warren race or? I don't think so. I think this is a, a national issue. I think that people here in Massachusetts are, by and large, happy with the health care reform as it was done here in Massachusetts. Um, and we're going to see less impact, perhaps, by Obamacare than, than other states. But other, in other states, this is a critically important issue. Uh, and, and people are very concerned and scared. And, you know, to the extent that small businesses have incentives put into uh, Obamacare, that, that information... Uh, is not widely appreciated, and and furthermore, they don't believe it. They believe that the tax burden from this is going to crush them. All right. Kerry Healy, Dr. Harry Selker, and David Kravitz, thanks so much for being with us. It was a great hour. Thanks, Emily. Terrific. Thank you. All right. That's going to do it for us this afternoon. We'll be back tomorrow with our spin on the news of the week from one of the most historic Supreme Court rulings in a generation to Bears in Brookline. We've got it all covered. Stay with us now for the Kelly Crossley Show coming up next with more continued analysis of today's landmark decision by the High Court. And tonight on my television show, Greater Boston, Carrie Healy will be back. We'll be hearing more. That's tonight at 7 on Channel 2. The Emily Rooney Show is a production of WGBH Radio. On the web at WGBH.org, Boston Public Radio. I'm Emily Rooney. Have a great afternoon.